0: give some common sense. Yes,
1: sir, and they have the cars stopped in 10 and the ranch by the We still don't know who pulled the trigger.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran, retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. And with me tonight is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn,
1: Phil Grimaldi. How
0: are you doing tonight, Phil?
1: I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm very uh, excited to get into this case. This is going to be a great one.
0: You know, uh, I I'd just like to acknowledge we did that show this afternoon about um, the cops in the 44 precinct getting pelted with bottles. And it was really a horrendous thing to see. And you know, something, just any of you cops out there, NYPD cops in particular, if you want us to cover any topic that you think would help you and other members from your precinct, I mean, within reason, this was a very specifically uh, show that we, we, we did to help the cops and to just shine a light on how great these cops are, these full four cops, tough as nails, tough as they come in the city. And I wanted to shine a light on them because they don't get support from the public. They don't get support from the politicians. They don't get support, for the most part, from the community. That was the community, the community attacking them with bottles this afternoon. So I just, want, again, wanted to acknowledge them. Uh, Bronx tough guys. You'll always be tough
1: in our books. And thanks for doing what you do. Billy, I just got to make a comment about that. I couldn't echo your words more than what you just said. Those guys, tough as nails cops. They're out there doing the job. And I think the fact that the media doesn't give enough kudos to the cops. I mean, generally, the community at large does not want that kind of, uh, you know, uh Bottle throwing at police officers. They don't want to reject the police. They don't want to defund the police. The good people, this is a small percentage of of people in in most of the cities that cause all this havoc and mayhem. So the good people generally ask them about the police. They don't want to defund the police. I think those cops are really up against it. Uh, It was great that we were able to focus on that and show that video. I don't know how well the media is replaying that video, but uh, great job by those cops, NYPD. The finest, they don't call them the finest for nothing. God bless you guys out there and all law enforcement across the country. Stay safe out there.
0: You know something I, I see in the chat, Lieutenant Pete Pranzo, a 3-2 and a street crime unit legend. If the street crime unit was around and that happened, street crime would have backed up the 4-4 and just cleaned up that corner like,
1: like a sanitation sweeping machine, you know? Absolutely, and there should be some enforcement following. You know, anytime that happened in my time, cops got something thrown at them, and it didn't happen like that. But the next day or two or a week or whatever it was, there'd be summons enforcement. There'd be nobody hanging out on that corner, that's for sure. They'd uh, voucher their radios if they were playing playing radios. If they were drinking on the street, they would uh, get summonses for that. And if they were smoking marijuana, dealing drugs, carrying guns, arrests would follow. And basically, they would take the street back.
0: Bruno Giovanni Santini Jr. That's one hell of a name. If a guy threw a bottle, yeah, hey, we'll have to do a a story. We'll have to do a a little chat about that. If a guy threw a bottle at my old man back in the early '70s when he was in the 414 Apache, the guy most likely doesn't make it to the hospital, let alone the precinct. Bruno Giovanni Santini Jr. I I agree with you, and but however, it's a different world we live in. And um, what's made it so difficult for these cops is video cameras. Every single thing they do is videoed. And uh, every single thing they do is questioned. And every single thing they do is uh, sent to internal affairs or to civilian complaint review board. So, Bruno, I commiserate with you, and we, we wish those days were back, but they're not. These cops have to live within the parameters that they've been dealt with. And it's much tougher than back in
1: 1971. Billy follow-up enforcement, uh, is not, uh, against the law. I think that, uh, That's something that could be done. I mean, listen, like he said, back in the day, maybe those guys would have uh, gotten tuned up a little bit. But today, with things that are going on, uh, that's off the uh, off limits. But I think, uh, you know, I would be out there with uh, a team of guys. I would get the precinct commander and uh, anybody double parks, write them a ticket. Drinking beer, write them a ticket. Uh, Marijuana, write them a ticket. Whatever it may be. Noise complaints, uh, do some enforcement and uh, teach them a lesson that they shouldn't be throwing bottles at uniformed police officers or any law enforcement officer.
0: One hundred percent. So Phil, why don't you tell our audience what what are we covering
1: tonight? what what, what story are we doing tonight? Okay, this uh, t- tonight, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary, August the 27th, uh, I'm sorry, August the 22nd, 1972, at about 3 p.m., there was a bank robbery in Brooklyn, in my old neighborhood. I was about 11 years old at the time, and uh, these two individuals entered the bank. There was a getaway driver outside, and the bank robbery goes awry. The driver notices a police car, takes off uh, leaves the other two armed individuals, one with a shotgun. I believe the other one had a machine gun and there's a 14 hour standoff hostages are taken right there. You have, uh, John, uh, Wartzyk, which is, uh, he was uh, portrayed by Al Pacino in the movie dog day afternoon. Uh, his n- name in the movie was sunny. And, uh, the real, uh, second robber was, uh, sal naturali naturali uh sal was killed uh at the end of the heist and uh he was played by uh oh geez i don't have john cassell you. who was fredo uh,
0: yeah. in the godfather right everyone cassell. knows john cassell not as john cassell but as fredo in the godfather it became a name uh, fredo became synonymous with a name for the useless brother too Right? <laughs> Are we getting into? Uh, no, no, I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to segue into that. But
1: that's what it has become. Yes, yes, yes. Fredo he, has he,
0: become the name for useless brother, and I mean, he, I'm not making that up.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen. Fredo turned in The Godfather. Fredo turned on Michael and gave him up. He was almost killed. So. Again, it it was like a turncoat, a traitor. So that's uh, really, you know, it's it's the brother that turned on him. But uh, Cazal played a great part in the movie. Uh, The movie was nominated for six Academy Awards. However, it won Best Screenplay. Um, There was really uh, uh, a lot of uh, dramatization in the movie. But uh, at about three o'clock when the bank robbery takes place, Uh, it was broadcast all over the radio and news that there was a hostage situation going on in Brooklyn. And I live not far from there. So uh, me and two of my friends went on the uh, subway, We got off at the Avenue P station, which was like two stations down from where we got on at Avenue U. And we went to the area. It was obviously closed off, but there was a schoolyard, like a little bit uh, to the right of of the building across the street. So we went around the block and we walked into the schoolyard and we had probably gotten to maybe 4.30-ish, I guess it was, 4, 4.30. And we were like, we had a front row seat to all the excitement and and the the whole situation that was going on. I believe uh, what you're showing there is uh, the police barricades. I don't know if that's the actual that that might be the uh when they were filming the movie. I'm not sure if that's the actual uh scene because the actual scene was uh on Avenue P. Now that that that's obviously from the movie, but uh there, there was a long standoff. And um, you know, uh in the initial stages when he came out of the bank, like I said, we were right there, he came to the front door with a hostage in front of him and he began to engage the police officers to ask for. Uh, he asked for his his uh, his homosexual lover to be brought there from Kings County Hospital. Uh, he also asked for food for the hostages. That's the, the the scene in the early stages of the movie when he when he uh, comes outside. But then later on, in, in the real life story, he uh, he actually came outside by himself uh, and talked with uh, a sergeant from the NYPD who was doing the early negotiation. Uh, that was uh, in the movie. He was uh, played as uh, Eugene Moretti, and then uh, eventually the FBI came in. They took over the negotiations, and that was uh, uh, an agent by the name of uh, Sheldon, Special Agent Sheldon. That uh, uh, towards the end of the whole siege, he's the one that architect the vehicle come in and taking them to the airport and so on. And uh, eventually, they would they were uh, in the car. They went to the airport. They were on the runway. And the FBI agent, there was a gun secreted in the car. The FBI agent was able to uh, point the gun up at the ceiling that was uh, pointed in his direction, the shotgun that Sal had. He shot Sal in the chest and, and he was killed. And then other agents were able to take uh, uh, John uh, Watsik into custody. Uh, none, of the, uh, n- none of the hostages was harmed. However, during negotiation, he did let one, he let the security guard out who was experiencing, I believe, an asthma attack, and he gave another hostage up uh, at the airport. So there was some negotiation. This was really one of the uh, early uh, hostage negotiation uh, uh, actual incidents that took place in New York City. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot was learned from this case. And uh, it was really quite... uh, A wild story, you know, the the initial story was that he robbed the bank because he wanted to get uh, the money for a sex change operation for his homosexual lover that you saw there that was being dramatized in the movie. Um, However, when you you see some of the documentaries, I did a lot of research. I watched a couple of documentaries on the real John Mortzik. And he's obviously very, very uh, wild character. I would classify him as an extreme narcissist, as a sex addict. Uh, He was driven by sex. He he claims in in one of the uh, interviews that he didn't do drugs. He didn't use alcohol. He didn't smoke. The one vice he had was sex, and he went full throttle on that. So he had a very, very, uh, a very strong sexual appetite, and uh, that's what drew him into this uh, life of crime. Uh, he wanted a the the uh, the gay lover um, wanted to uh, uh, have a sex change operation to become a woman. And uh, he had uh, attempted suicide a couple of times now. John Wartzyk didn't want him to do the operation. However, once he saw that he attempted suicide and that he really felt that he was a woman in a man's body and wanted the sex change. So he said he would go out and rob the bank and uh, give him the money to get the uh, to get the, uh, the sex change operation. I see we have Jimmy Calandra in there.
0: Yeah, Jimmy Calandra, John Cassell. Every film he was in was nominated for an Academy Award. He was in five films. He's the best who ever did it. You know, unfortunately, John Casal died at the age of 47. So he didn't have a long life. And he was a tremendous, tremendous actor. And again, he played Fredo in The Godfather, which was the most uh, famous role. So, you know, just let me give you a little background on this. In August 1972, John Wojewitz, 27, a married Brooklyn man and Vietnam vet, with a stream of gay lovers on the side, decided to rob a bank to pay for his boyfriend's sex change. In the aftermath of the crime, the 14-hour hostage ordeal that riveted the nation, a character based on Wojewicz, would be played by Al Pacino in the 1975 film Dog Day Afternoon, which earned six Oscar nominations, winning Best Screenplay. While Wojowitz's tale on film became the stuff of legend, the man himself remained little heard from until now with a posthumous documentary, The Dog, hitting theaters uh, this past Friday. The success of Pacino's portrayal sprang from the hero-villain dichotomy of the character, as in the real-life robbery, which took place on August 22, 1972. At a Chase Manhattan branch in Gravesend, Brooklyn, Bojewicz got both his hostages and the many onlookers on his side, positioning himself as the little guy fighting against tyranny. The dog, which shows interviews with Wojewicz from 2002 until his death four years later, proves his reality was more outlandish than any movie. The night before the robbery, Wojewicz and his accomplices, 18-year-old Sal Natural and 20-year-old Bobby Westenberg, stayed in a New Jersey hotel. Wojewicz agreed to pay Westenberg $50,000 for his assistance. For that money, Wojewicz wanted more than just a partner in crime. I grabbed the hold of Bobby Westenberg and I wanted to... They, the article uses the F word, uh, him, because he used to dress up as a girl, Wojewicz says in the film. He goes, I don't want you effing me, I said. I'm giving you $50,000 and you're going to tell him I'm not getting F out of it. So then as lost The self-described pervert met his wife, Carmen, at a bank where they both worked in the mid-1960s. Wojewicz was drafted soon after and had his first homosexual experience during basic training. After Vietnam, Wojewitt was still married to Carmen, joined the Gay Activist Alliance, but was driven more by a desire for sex than politics. Um, I was a member of the entertainment committee, so I would meet and greet new gay people coming into the scene, would said. I could have sex with them quicker than anybody else because they were just coming out. He was considered a disgrace at GAA dances. He would fall on a couch and start having sex with somebody in a semi-public place. Randy Wicker, a journalist who helped Wojewicz negotiate the film rights to his story, tells The Post his reputation within GAA was the guy is a Looney Tune. So just giving you a little background on this guy. He doesn't sound like he's wrapped too tight, but uh, that's a little background on the story.
1: Yeah. I wanted to give a shout out to Jimmy Calandra. He's uh, got the podcast, a Bath Avenue story. Jimmy says, I believe he said near that, because uh, I was 43 when he passed bill, I know he died of brain cancer at a young age. He did do, five films or so and uh really tremendous acts that it's really a shame that he did die at uh, at a young age but uh yeah I I mean the the way that the movie portrayed uh this John uh Wartzyk, or I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Wats Watsowick Watsowich uh, yeah yeah he he had a very very uh he was a sex addict and he was pretty wild. And when he would meet people, he would, he had like a lot of shock value in what he said. When he first met you, he would say outlandish things. He was almost like, I think I said to you earlier today, Bill, he was like a a Howard Stern of bank robbers because he was like a shock jock. He would say wild off the, off the wall things. And, uh, one of the people that did a documentary actually taped some phone calls with him, and he would answer the phone and say, "It's what's the code word?" They'd have to say "dog," and he'd say, "Hold on, I'll get him," and and you'd have to call between midnight and six a.m. I guess he was a, a night owl, and he would demand uh, outlandish amounts of money and stuff. So uh, I think he received from the uh, rights to the screenplay was seventy five hundred dollars while he was in jail from Warner Brothers, and um, I think that uh, twenty five hundred of it was given to. Uh, they portrayed him as Leon in the movie. Uh, his name was um, Ernest, uh, Ernest Aaron. Uh, the, it, they called him Ernie. Uh, uh, there he is. Him That's yeah, him
0: on yeah. the screen.
1: Yeah, that's Ernie, Uh, I guess, after the sex change operation, or maybe before, I don't even know. But uh, yeah, so there was a wild set of circumstances uh, around this case. Now, the movie showed Watsik as a more rational person than he really was. That's one of the statements that I read when I was doing a little background on him. And believe it or not, back in the 70s, there was a National Gay Task Force that actually approved of the script because it was, uh, you know, it was talking about he was one of the first people to have a, a, a gay wedding uh, in New York. You know, he was married to a woman, Carmen, by Fulco. They had two kids. Um, during the time when, when uh, you know, the hostage situation was going on, they actually had the wife, Carmen, speak to him on the phone. Uh, he also had conversation with... Uh, they, they portrayed him as Leon, but that was Ernie, Ernest Aaron. They brought him to the scene and uh, he was in the Kings County Hospital, I believe in the uh, in the psych ward. And they brought him there because he had attempted suicide to try and have a dialogue with John, not to hurt the hostages and to possibly release them. Um, so that's all dramatized in the movie. There was a, another part of the movie where they showed his mother coming to the scene. That wasn't actually true. His mother never came to the scene. That was again, dramatized for Hollywood. And there was also one other thing that he talked about in one of the documentaries that, um, towards the end of the movie, when, uh, the FBI agent has a quick conversation and before they're going to get into the limousine, the FBI agent that was played by Broderick. Uh, I think it was Matthew Broderick, um, was Broderick's father, but uh, his last name was Broderick. Uh, He says to him, don't worry about Sal. We'll take care of him. And then as he turns away, Al Pacino yells to me, says, what do you think? I'm going to sell out Sal. So there was an inference that he basically allowed Sal to be killed. So while he was in jail, there were several attempts to try and kill him. Uh, The screenwriter who threw that in there said he felt terrible about it, that he had to spend a year and a half in solitary confinement because there was uh, attempts made on his life based on that scene that didn't actually happen. It wasn't true. It was dramatized for the movie. So again, sometimes things are put in there that aren't always true, but uh, there was, um, there was one teller. Her name was uh, Josephine Tatino. Her and her husband made a song called lollipops and shotguns i was just so taken back by this because during the time when they were having this dialogue between the hostages and the bank robbers the only thing in the in the uh, in the bank was lollipops that they would give out to the kids so they were the woman remembers eating a lollipop and having a shotgun pointed at her so they made a song called lollipops and shotguns. I thought that was really wild. I guess there was a little bit of the Stockholm syndrome started to take place where there was dialogue between, uh, and they, they dramatized that in the movie. They talk about it, how, you know, she says, Oh, did you have a plan to him? And he says, well, I had a plan. They almost get into like an argument. So there was definitely dialogue going on between the, uh, the hostages and the bank robbers. And then there was several things that took place where they, uh, they asked for, I believe they asked for hamburgers and, and sodas. In the movie, they delivered pizzas. Uh, so I guess that was a little bit of a, a difference in what actually happened. But uh I remember being across the street and seeing all of this stuff. You know, first he like I said, he came out with the one uh bank teller hostage, and then he started to negotiate and he was he started yelling things, and there was thousands and thousands of people in and around that bank. And like I said, I was across the street from the bank. And I was in behind that fence in the schoolyard. And uh, I was kind of uh, inspired to become a police officer based on this movie and The French Connection. I always tell everybody that The French Connection and this movie gave me the inspiration to want to become a cop. I mean, one of the things that struck me was when he was coming out of the bank, you know, first he came with the hostages. Obviously, you're not going to shoot at him while he's right next to a hostage. But there were points where he came out of the bank and I was thinking to myself, why don't they just shoot them? Or why don't they just grab them? Uh, obviously not knowing that there was another bank robber inside the building, you know, with a machine gun or whatever it was holding the other hostages. So that kind of puzzled me a little bit, but, uh, I'll never forget. There was a tree right in front of the bank little bit to the, to the left of the front door of the bank. And there was a cop with a gun and he must've been there for a couple of hours without moving. And finally somebody tapped him on the shoulder. You know, he took relief and then another cop took the position. There were cops on the floor behind cars, cops on the roof. There were just cops everywhere. It was a really unbelievable scene.
0: You know, I just, from remembering just seeing this movie and uh, one of the, the scenes, I think it may have been a scene. This may have been the scene here. It seemed every damn cop had his gun out and was pointing it. And I kept thinking, like, why are they all pointing their guns at one guy? If they are, if they wind up shooting someone, they're going to shoot each other. And I just thought even before, I, I mean, I was, God, 72. I was pretty damn young, way before I was ever a cop. I was like, how ridiculous is the, are these tactics that all these guys are standing there with their guns out? And I just thought... Even not being a cop, how how ridiculous it was for them to do that.
1: Bill, I gotta tell you though, I was there, I was an eyewitness to it. The amount of police officers that were at the front of that bank with their guns drawn was definitely excessive. Now, obviously they weren't pointing at each other. They were they were pointing um in a direction towards the front door of it. And I don't think there would have been crossfire. You know, the movie, obviously, you know, they're dramatizing everything. They want to, all right, we're going to point the camera at you guys, everybody with their guns out. So that's probably what that was. But listen, there were a lot of guns pointing in their direction. There's no doubt I was there. I was eyewitness to it. And uh, I could tell you that that's, Definitely was there. I mean, rifles, pistols, anybody that was in the area. Now, there were cops by the fence where I was across the street. Obviously, those police officers were just trying to keep the crowd back. They didn't have any guns out or anything. But, um, you know, there was definitely a lot of police officers there that did, did have their guns out.
0: You know, one of the things, the uh, the director was a, a gentleman named Sidney Lumet. And one of the things that they said was, uh, was sort of great was that um, uh, John Wojohowicz, whatever this guy's last name is, it's very tough to pronounce.
1: Watsik, just say It's whats, it, what's it? he
0: he actually looked a lot like, or Al Pacino looked a lot like him. So yeah, it yeah. wasn't a difficult match to make. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I mean, obviously Al Pacino is a hell of a lot better looking guy than this guy. But it sort of gave them, you know, the same size, the sort of... Uh, Al Pacino was a perfect match for this part. And one of the things that I thought was amazing was, and you probably wouldn't even notice this unless it was pointed out to you, there was almost no music in the movie. There was one song, and the song was written by Elton John, and I believe it was played near the end but there was no music Actually, that, was
1: play, that was playing on the car, Billy. I know which, what, what you're talking about. When, what, they, what they wanted to do is they wanted to give an appearance of dog day afternoon, like just an ordinary day in New York city. And they did a lot of, uh, I read, I read this in, in the, um, uh, the research I did, they got in a station wagon, they drove over to Brooklyn Bridge and they took shots, exterior shots of everything. And then the song was playing on the car radio when they pulled when they show the car in front of the bank and them getting out of the car. That's the song that was playing on the radio. And yes, it was the only uh, it was the only thing that was playing uh, only music that was played throughout the whole movie.
0: It actually says the reason for no music is that, as you'll see from the story that develops here, this truly happened. It was so important to me that the audience believe it really happened because what happened was so outrageous. These are the words of Sidney Lumet. And I could not reconcile trying to convince an audience that this really happened, which I felt was the first obligation of the movie with putting a music score in. How would it have felt if suddenly in the midst of a sequence you heard an orchestra? Lumet's choice to not include music impacts the film in fascinating ways. And in essence, the actors were the music, the actors were the rhythm, the actors were their voices and, and, and the dialogue uh, supplanted the music and took over for the lack of music.
1: You know, this was a true story and it's, it's, I guess they wanted to make the point that it was true story. There was very little, there was a few things changed. Like I said, and uh, it was just so crazy that this was going on right in our own neighborhood. Now, while I was at the bank, my, my brother, Nick, just texted me. He actually, and this is true, he called the bank. He got information and got the telephone number of the bank. He called the bank and he asked, who is this? And the person on the other end replied, this is the bank robber. And my brother got scared and hung up. So, and and I think there's people calling uh, in the movie that they, they, show people calling the bank and saying crazy things or so, uh, stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, I, I was, uh, there was a search party out looking for me and my friends because before, uh, before I left the house, I needed a quarter to get on the subway. And I asked my mother for a quarter and she, she says, you're not going to that bank, robbery, And I says, no, no, me and my friends are going to go get ice cream. And, uh, naturally we jumped on the subway and we went to, uh, we went to the bank robbery. And then, like I said, it got so crowded behind us. I was up against that fence in that schoolyard and it got so crowded behind us that we actually couldn't leave. So now, you know, it gets dark in late August, a little after eight, I guess. Uh, it was dark and I knew that, you know, I had to be home and I was going to get a beating and all of that. So at around, probably around 11 o'clock, 11 ish or a little after 11, Uh, I got the attention of one of the police officers and I says, officer, I got, you know, we got to get out of here. Me and my friends got it. We got to get home. My parents are probably going crazy looking for me. And you know, we couldn't get through the crowd behind us. She's like, what do you want me to do? And I kept saying, officer, please help us, help us. Finally, he said, listen, there's a hole in the fence down there. And he started telling everybody, let them through, let them through. And he walked down probably about 10, 15 yards and we got out of the hole in the fence and he let us go up East fourth street. This was on the, the bank was on right on the corner of East third street. He let us go up East fourth street towards, uh, I guess Avenue. O, and then we walked home. And, uh, like I said, I got a shellac. And when I got home, but my brother and I listened to, uh, all of the, the stuff that was going on, they had like live, uh, broadcast on the radio. And, uh, my, I think I fell asleep, but my brother says that he remembered hearing the whole thing through. And then finally about four or five o'clock in the morning, they had said that, uh, that the bank rob- this the hostage situation was over. Uh, one of the bank robbers had been shot and killed and the other one was taken into custody. So, uh, it was a long night, but, uh, I got to tell you a crazy, crazy situation. And, uh, I could remember, uh, the police car pulling up across the street with, uh, I guess it was Ernie or they, they, they called him Leon in the movie and he came out of the car and he was in a a hospital gown. And I believe it was like a, a shop where they were, where they made him make the phone calls. That's uh, that's Ernie there, which uh, he was called Leon in the movie, but his real name was, he changed his name to Elizabeth Eden, but it's Ernest Aaron was the real person. That was obviously the actor that played him. Uh, Let's see. I think the actor's name was Chris Sarandon. Uh, you'd know him if you saw him today, but uh, that was a young Chris Sarandon that played him. And there, listen, there was some, uh, there was some hills to get over with this movie because there was never, uh, none of the main uh, actors, none of the big time actors had played a gay part. And, uh, you know, there was a little bit of, uh, you know, reluctance to get involved in a movie that was going to go through all these, uh, you know, these gay stereotypes and everything. And, and uh, there was challenges, I guess. And I know that, you uh, There was one part where uh, the script called for uh, Al Pacino's character to kiss uh, Leon in the movie. Now, they never really met. Uh, When he was brought to the scene, he talked to him over the phone. He didn't go face to face with him. So Al Pacino was reluctant. He said, listen, I don't think that I should be uh, kissing him on screen since they didn't really met. And then they wrote that out of the script. The, uh, The screenwriter... Was a guy by the name, I think, of Preston. He he agreed that uh, that you know since they had never met, they took that out of the script, and he didn't want to uh, you know have Al Pacino kiss him on screen. So uh, I guess you know he was gonna he was gonna greet him with a kiss, hello. I don't know if he was gonna kiss him on the lips or on the cheek or whatever it was, but Al Pacino was reluctant to do it since they had never met, so they cut that out of there. So there was a lot of things that uh, that happened in real life that didn't show up on the screen, and other things that did show up on the screen that didn't happen because the drama, dramatization of the movie dog day
0: afternoon opens with elton john's amo Arena, about someone yearning for their faraway sweetheart the song has a pleasant country rock style and john's pleasant voice sounds like a soft summer day its honeyed sound and flowery lyrics of bright cornfields crystal streams songbirds and sycamores starkly opposed the urban images We see in the opening montage, dogs rooting through garbage, crossing ferries, homeless people, construction workers, traffic, the Manhattan skyline. Originally, the footage was silent, but Sidney Lumet explained on the DV commentary that editor D.D. Allen would play Amarina over the sequence, and he liked it so much he kept it. Lumet connected the song to Sonny's getaway car radio parked outside of the bank in the montage's final shot. Perhaps Elton John's sentimental song evokes the sunny country's sunny dreams of escaping to brighter places away from the grime of the city or Wyoming, as Sal densely suggests. Amarina stands out in a film that has no classic score. Lumet's elimination of music in Dog Day Afternoon absorbs the viewer in story and the heat of every electrifying moment. I don't think I could have said that that well without reading that. That's
1: yeah, I mean. that was pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty intense, right? You, you know, Billy, the, the, when they filmed the movie, now, like I said, the actual bank robbery took place at 450 Avenue P. It was on Avenue P and the corner of East 3rd Street and Brooklyn in Brooklyn and Gravesend. They wound up filming it not far away on Prospect Park West between 17th and 18th Street. They took over a factory with a second floor and they co- constructed the front of what looked like the front of the bank on the, on the first floor. And upstairs they had the offices for the, for the movie set and they kept the catering up there. Now, one of the things that I read, and this was a little bit like a, a Hollywood thing, they wound up uh, filming and obviously it was supposed to take place in August, but they filmed in October and it got down to like 40 degrees one night. So there was, you know, uh, uh when people were talking, their breath was coming out and, and showing up on film. So what they would do is they would suck on an ice cube before they would call action. They'd spit out the ice cube to make their mouth the same temperature as the air. So you wouldn't get that uh that fog effect coming out of their mouth. So that's a little uh, Hollywood trick, I guess.
0: I I yeah, I would guess so. I, I certainly don't know it. Here's a uh, John Casal. Again, uh uh, uh Jimmy Calandro, who's in the chat, says he died at the age of 43. You said I thought it was 47. He was engaged to Meryl Streep. There they are together. Uh, prior to him, I guess he, he died of a brain tumor. I believe it was brain cancer. Yeah, Billy. Brain cancer. So, and here's a uh, a photo of him um, from the movie. And in reality, the real character was supposed to only be 18 years old. So John Cassal was substantially older than that uh, in the movie, but the real life uh, character he played was only 18 years
1: old. You know, one of the other things that I found very interesting that uh, Sidney Lament, who was obviously the director in the, in the film, uh, was allowing the actors to ad lib certain scenes where they said, listen, just stay close to the script. You didn't have to go exact. So when John Cazale was asked by uh, Sonny uh, Al Pacino, where he wanted to go, and they didn't have anything written in on the script as far as what his answer was going to be. So he he said, "Sal, what country do you want to go to?" And John Casal responds, "Wyoming." And uh, I believe it was lament, uh, Sidney lament, Sydney lament, and the the. Uh, the screenwriter, Preston, they had to like hold their mouth with laughter when he said that, but he said it with such a serious face. He was really, truly a great actor because you you could tell he said it like he believed that that was a country, you know, Wyoming. So uh, again, I that remember that I
0: line, uh, like it was said yesterday and, and that it was so funny because obviously, yeah. you know, Wyoming is not a country, uh, you know, it's a state and uh, you could see someone that was ignorant and from the streets
1: and uneducated to say something like that. Yeah. There was a couple of the scenes that were uh, ad libbed like where the uh, police sergeant is, is having dialogue with, with Al Pacino and he says, yeah, well he's uh, he or she, like he makes a mistake, but they left it in because uh, it was natural. It it sounded, you know, real legit. So uh, again, uh, a lot of things uh, sometimes, and you and I, Bill know that when we did, um, the perfect murder episodes, there was some ad-libbing in the first, uh, that was the first time we met. We did some ad-libbing in, uh, in that show and they kept it. They, you know, the, the script we looked. Yeah, script. Who, who did, who did I lose the Oscar to that year? <laughs> Brad Pitt. Wasn't it Brad <laughs> yeah, Pitt? Yeah,
0: Brad Pitt. Yeah. Chick Eastwater, Sydney Lumet directed Serpico a few years before Dog Day. You know, back in the day, I loved that movie Serpico. I tried to watch it recently. It's so dated that it's like actually laughable. Some movies get dated and you can't watch them in the same way. And I wonder if you watch Dog Day Afternoon today, if it would be dated in that way.
1: I don't know. I like going back to Serpico, the French Connection, Dog Day Afternoon, because those were movies. They were like inspiring to me as a kid, like I said, to want to become a cop, especially the French Connection. I mean, that was also filmed in my neighborhood. A lot of the scenes of the car chase took place just a few blocks from where I lived, along Stuart Avenue and then down 86th Street. I mean, that movie was uh iconic for that chase scene, you know? And the Marlboro projects, which were right around the corner from my house, that's where the scene is where he gets shot at and stuff and starts. That's where he commandeers the car and starts the whole. uh, You know, uh, Phil, Milwaukee
0: Milwaukee civilian is thanking us for teaching him that Wyoming (laughs) is not a country and the things that he learns on Police Off the Cuff. We're happy to educate you and uh, anyone else out there that does not know that Wyoming is not a country. We're happy to uh, impart that to you. And thank you. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed to us, I don't know why you wouldn't be. Go on our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, ring that bell, give us a thumbs up. If you want to uh, support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. We also have a YouTube channel memberships with five different levels. And you could support us in that way. Uh, these old movies i mean when i talk about a movie being dated you can watch certain movies like for the godfather will never be dated first of all it's really a period piece i think the the dates that it was filmed were uh i would think it was in the the 40s or 50s right and then it gets into maybe the the early 60s at the latest right yeah i don't think it goes beyond that so it's in those that 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 frame, and you could see that by the the outfits the people are wearing, the costumes, uh, the
1: suits. You know, it fits that time. The cars, of course. If you take one and two, I think you're going from the 20s to the 60s, like you said. Probably like the, the early 20s. Uh, that's when he's working. You know, when. Uh, um, Robert De Niro's character is working in the uh, in the Salamaria, I guess it is, and then you go all the way to probably like the early late fifties, early sixties. Of course, they're talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, time there when when uh, you know when uh, the the Castro's took over Cuba. So yeah, it's probably uh, that that time period. But I got to tell you, I could watch that movie a hundred times. I could watch The French Connection a hundred times. I didn't rewatch Dog Day Afternoon for this. Uh, episode that we're doing. However, there's about three different documentaries. I watched two of them. There's a third one called The Dog. I think it's going to be very interesting. It really shows you what a narcissist and what a psychopath and what a sex addict this John uh, Watzik really was. Uh, He was uh, all over the map. And and he was very shocking from the first minute he met people that wanted to do uh, any type of a documentary or talk to him about it. He would come out with shocking things. Like he he, he said some really wild off the wall things to the people that wound up doing the dog. And he first met, th- th- it was a, a man and a woman that, that uh, produced it. Um, Frank uh Cur- Carodin and Allison Berg, when he met Frank, the first thing he says is I want to F you. And he was like, so taken back by it. And he goes, you know, by the time this is over, I'm going to F you. Like he really wanted to like shock them. And I, what they characterized him as was obviously a narcissist, but they said he they he wanted to see what your reaction was going to be to what you said to him. If you would put up with his insanity, he would then open up to you. And they also made another point about him that he seemed to be the kind of person that wanted to if he liked you, he'd do anything for you. So that's the point when they talk about the movie that he was really in love with this guy that wanted to become a woman. So he decided he was going to rob a bank for uh Leon, as I said, uh, he's, he's called Leon in the movie. He, he wanted to help him to get a sex change, even though he didn't want him, he wanted him to remain as a man, he didn't want to, uh have a relationship with him as a woman but he wanted to try to kill himself he was trapped in a in a man's body i guess and uh so again uh that's the way they portrayed him i think he was just very narcissistic there's some conspiracy theories and there's things out there he he had issues with different um companies that wanted to do the uh like he he was pissed at Warner brothers he didn't let the screenwriter uh, meet with him in jail because of the money disputes and stuff like that so he put out these uh, conspiracy theories that it was architect by organized crime that they give him the information however uh, supposedly he met a bank employee he was actually a bank employee as well as his real wife his his first wife Carmen that's how they met they met in a bank so he knew the ins and outs of how the money was dropped and uh, you know if you pull all the paper out of the, uh, out of the drawer that's uh, uh, it, it knows it sends a signal that the bank is being rob different things like that so um again
0: phil i i was watching um an episode recently of an old sopranos or it may have just been a clip and it was richie april was sitting in front of satrials and he's gonna have a a sit down with tony and i think he may have just gotten out of prison and um christopher comes walking along and tony says richie this is uh christopher you know he's uh you know he's a friend of ours, and Richie says, "Yeah, nice to meet you." Now take a walk. He goes, "Oh, wait a minute." He goes, "You you are uh, you're going out with my uh, my my niece." He goes, "I hear you're putting your hands on her. You better stop putting your hands on her." And he says to her, "You want to put your hands on her? You give her your last name." <laughs> I was just like, as no, so that's okay if you marry her? You can slap her around and it's all right?" But from his point of view, it was like, if you want to put your hands on her, you give her your last name because now she's your wife and it's none of my business. Right. So it's okay to slap your wife around,
1: but not your girlfriend. That's my niece.
0: Right. Exactly. But I was like, what a mentality is that? And I was just like, I thought it was funny because, you know you want to put your hands on it, you give you a little snake cuff. Oh
1: my God. You know what though? That's the mob mentality of, uh, yesteryear. And, uh, listen, I, I don't agree with, violence in any way shape or form uh, man woman man man uh, female female whatever it is there's no place for violence in this world there's enough of it out there and you and i've saw enough of it so again you get into an argument with somebody if it starts to get physical you got to just walk away i'm talking about a, a wife a husband a loved one it's time to take a breather and uh Yeah, that's crazy. You want to put your hands on it you give me last name? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, did did Christopher have any super side that he was cutting up when he was saying? No, he didn't. In fact,
0: Richie Appeal told him to take a walk. He, He felt a little disrespected during that scene. Yeah, you know?
1: see, if he would have walked in with some super Sodom provolone, Don Salami might have approved of that. You know, there, there would have been there would have been no problem.
0: I, I love when Richie Appeal gives Tony that leather
1: jacket, and Tony wants like no part of it. You know yeah, right? yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, that was a great, great series. I don't think there's anything that could ever come close to that. I mean, that goes right in the in the history books with the the Godfather, the Sopranos. That was just a great series. Outstanding, Philly. Go to the commercial, please. Sure. Uh, multiple time guest on police off the cuff. He was actually on Jimmy calandry's show as well. And if you'd like to advertise on police off the cuff, real crime stories, all you have to do is drop us an email at police off the cuff. The number one at gmail.com. Give us an email. The re- uh, rates are very, very reasonable. It might be the right thing for your business. We have an international audience as well as a local audience. So again, it might be the right thing for your business.
0: Well said, Phil. I, you know, talking to Joe Murray. Where the hell is he tonight?
1: I, you know, he's busy. He's busy with a. Uh, he's right in the middle of a money laundering case, and I think he's going to trial. I think this week and next week, if I'm not mistaken, because I did speak to him last week. Uh, so he's probably got his hands full. He's probably got his hands full. Yeah, because I'm gonna have to give case him a federal court, court. So you got to be on your game, you know.
0: Yeah, I got to be. Hey, Joe, where you know where have you been? You haven't been. Uh, you know, you want to. <laughs> You want to put your hands on it and give it your
1: last name? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know know what? With all the uh, advertising we do for him, he hooked himself a uh, pretty good case. And listen, Joe Murray's a great guy. He's a great human being and he's a great attorney. So again, like I said, he's right in the middle of a big big case right now in federal court. So I'm sure he'll be back in the chat shortly, I'm
0: sure.
1: (laughs) To Tony the Night Owl, Phil Leo,
0: lots of laughs. Yes, we even know the dialogue. So I tend to study lighting and set design. It's all good. What Tony the Night Owl, what movie are you talking about? We like to be entertained here too, but I came right in on a conversation. Phil Leo, to me, Goodfellas and the Godfather 1 and 2 uh, are three of the finest movies ever crafted. So good, no matter how many times you've seen them, the acting just keeps you riveted. You know, I spoke the other day how Four great actors from mob movies just died. James Kahn, right? Yes. From The Godfather. Ray Liotta from Goodfellas. Um, Paulie Walnuts, I never remember his real name, from Goodfellas. And um, Sopranos, he's from Sopranos. Uh, from Sopranos. And yeah. the other one from Goodfellas, um, Paulie. Uh,
1: pa- Paulie Walnuts, uh, James Gandolfini. Um Ray Liotta from Goodfellas. That's what you were thinking of.
0: No, no, no. I'm thinking of the heavy set guy who was the boss. Was played Paulie in in Goodfellas. He
1: just oh, died. Uh, Paul Savino. Paul Savino. Paul right. Savino. Yeah. yeah. Paul Savino. Ray Liotta. Uh Yeah. And then James Gandolfini died a couple of years ago. And then uh, had, longer uh,
0: than you think. Longer than you think. James. Yeah. I mean, yeah. J- James Gandolfini was. um he was a tremendous actor. Oh, tremendous, tremendous. The guy didn't even do his best stuff yet. You know, he had uh, he had a lot of uh, solid work ahead of him, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah. was just a solid, solid actor. You know,
1: it's just absolutely uh, Tommy Dades worked on a, on a, some cut type of a project with him and they were going to do something going forward in the future. And then he passed away. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. That was you know it was funny. Guy. We we were
0: friends with this. Um my wife actually was friends, but I became friends with him too. His name was Chuck Lowe. And Chuck Lowe was in the Sopranos and he was in Goodfellas. And Goodfellas, he played Maury, you know, the guy with the wigs, he was always, like, hey, when am I getting my money? When am I getting my money?
1: Yeah. So
0: instead of giving him his money, they just killed him. They gave him the ice pick. In, <laughs> in real life, he was a um he owned tons of real estate in Tribeca. And he actually owned the building that Harvey Keitel and De Niro lived in. And that's how he got into acting. De Niro was like, this guy is a character. I got to get this guy in some movies. And he started getting into movies just on the strength of being a real character. And he played a, a rabbi, a, a Hasidic rabbi in The Sopranos. And he was off the charts
1: great. He was so funny.
0: I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was like,
1: that's Chuck, you know. I don't- I didn't realize that that was more until now that you said it. When you, the rabbi, you're right. I, yes, I that uh, that, that rabbi. He
0: was a Hasidic rabbi in in, in The Sopranos, sure. and he was so damn good because he was such a character in real life. I mean, he just he was, you know. I did what at his memorial service, De Nero stood up and spoke, and he said, "The first time I met Chuck, he goes, he was out in the front of his building in his underwear, shoveling snow." you know he was like this eccentric 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 millionaire you know he was out in front of the building in his in his boxer shorts shoveling in the snow and i said I that's joke. that was funny as hell you know that and then really when i is. learned about him i mean the guy had like he was a brilliant guy he had like he was a, like an electrical engineer he had all this amazing education his family owned nautical instruments a, a company that made nautical instruments and it was like That's how he started out, and then he became this, uh, they called him Mr. Tribeca at one time. Yeah, he He owned a lot of
1: real estate.
0: They owned a lot of real estate down in Tribeca, and uh, funny. Tom Cusinelli, Tony Sirico, Paulie Walnuts, thank you. I always forget his name. He was a guy, he did a few years in the can too, I think, and- I don't know if he was like an associate or just what he. Yeah, did. He, he was.
1: He was a, They call him a knockaround guy. He was a knockaround. He guy. may
0: have been stealing some cheese from uh, well. some of those, <laughs> some of those Italian delis in uh, in Brooklyn. You know, then he's got some
1: problems. You know. Absolutely. Somebody put in the chat, Phil Leo, when Sonny and the Godfather bites his son, it's not his son-in-law, it's his brother-in-law's knuckles grabbing the fence rail. I almost fell out of my chair laughing. So realistic. There are guys in Brooklyn that would do that. Laugh my ass off. It's funny because when I was doing a, uh, an episode of The Perfect Murder and a guy said something to me and I wanted to hit him and I went like this. I bit my <laughs> knuckle and that's, that's what Sonny does. I think that's where I got that because I don't know, maybe Italians when we get mad. You, you know, you bite your knuckle, you know, and yeah, that, 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 that scene fight, fight scene when he beat
0: up his brother-in-law, that was like, I wonder how many takes they did on that. When he throws, he throws his shoe at him, you know, he does, he, he, the guy he clasps his hands so he couldn't grab yeah, him off of hold the, on to the fence. Yeah. And it, got, it was like, I mean you know when you think about it uh, Francis Ford Coppola who did Godfather 1 and 2 brilliant brilliant director and he did he didn't do a, a ton of he did Apocalypse Now which was brilliant too but I think at some point in his life he got tired of doing movies and he, he now he makes wine he's a winemaker he owns vineyards in California but his daughter is a big director now Sophia uh yeah. Sophia Coppola but uh, and, and do you know want to hear something crazy? Do you know who um is uh, Francis Ford Coppola's cousin? Oh, Nicholas Cage. Oh shit! Yeah, you would never think that, right? Yeah, Nick, yeah, yeah. Same family, a lot of talent in that family, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, now think about you know you're saying that he retired and he's he's doing wine and stuff like that. Think about what it must take. Now you're the director of the film, and you have to get all of these actors together. And these were big names, I mean, probably big egos and stuff. And, and you, you know, Bill, you know, with the few things that we did, actors could be very uh, temperamental and, you know, they want certain things. And when you're talking about a Marlon Brando and James Khan and all these different people and, and Al Pacino, you know, after winning, uh, Academy Awards and stuff like that. Now you got to get them together for another film and not a third film. It's probably very difficult. And uh, it's probably a lot of different things, that, a lot of components to that, getting it together, uh, dealing with everybody's personalities. And then if, if you look at this, there's, uh, there's a show out called The Offer. It's a series. They're talking about how hard it was to get The Godfather made, that uh, they would get resistance from organized crime, which doesn't really exist as we know, Billy. It's all That's made right. up, it's all lies, but you know, they got resistance from the mob. They got resistance from the studio, a lot of different things. So it, it's pro- listen, none of this stuff is easy. When you uh, produce a motion picture and you have to go through, I mean, listen, you, you saw it and I saw it in, in doing the perfect murder. I uh, have a newfound respect for actors and then there's all the part of the production. And, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of moving parts to those things and you have to, you know, lighting and the de- the weather outside, if it's an out exterior shot and uh, you know, uh, wardrobe when you, every time you do the scene, everything, if you get up and things move, you got to put everything back in place. So it's not easy. It's, it's a difficult, uh, you
0: know, difficult someone thing. just brought up another uh, little tidbit of information. Talia Shire is is Francis Ford Coppola's sister, right? Right. So look how talented that family is. Yeah,
1: yeah. And
0: I I believe the father, Francis Ford Coppola's father, wrote the the musical score for the Godfather. Incredible, you know.
1: Yeah.
0: A lot of uh, a lot of talented Italians there, you know. That's it. (laughs) <laughs> Who needs movie clips? We got Billy. <laughs> uh, that's right. Anyone in the chat want to uh, bring up anything to us? Uh, Jojo Jolene, uh, she says she hates Blood and Guts. She didn't know any of the movies that we just brought up. You know, just, Jojo Jolene,
1: uh, you're not the only one, although uh, I plan to watch The Godfather. Yeah, I guess uh, that's Kim Allison answering Jojo Jolene. So some people didn't see those movies. I mean, if you didn't see The Godfather 1 and 2, I mean, 3 is is, is okay. But really, you should sit down. It's a long, t- long period of time, but you will not regret it. People, uh, you know, they binge watch a lot of different series and shows. That's one. If you haven't seen that, Godfather, French Connection, great movie. Uh Goodfellas, great movie, even though it's a little blood and guts type stuff. And then Dog Day Afternoon, I think, is a great movie. Serpico, I think, has also got uh, some great acting in it. Uh, there's a l- lot of great movies, a lot of great movies out there from the 70s and 80s. Today, it seems like they're redoing a lot of movies. They're running out of things to write about. But well, Everything
0: cool. now is on Netflix or HBO, like that show Ozark on Netflix. That's a great show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, tremendous. And I'm not like... I don't usually get drawn into Netflix. I don't know how my wife or my kids got me to watch that. And uh, tremendous acting. I mean, you know. Is that the one
1: with Kevin Costner?
0: No, no. That's another thing. That's, uh, I can't think of the name of that now. That's on that big ranch. Yes. it's like a Western. Yeah. Yeah, That's pretty good too. My wife
1: and kids got sucked into that one with Kevin Costner.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good too. I mean, some of these... um, some of these series, you know, you get you get sucked in. Uh, it's unbelievable, you know.
1: Okay. Sandra H see.
0: says she loves Ozark. Yeah, Expo- oh, Yellowstone. Ozark. Yellowstone. Yellowstone is the one it. with. Uh,
1: yes, that's Kevin Carson. That's it. Yeah. There, there, Billy, there's a question here from Milwaukee civilian. It says, "What are Bill and Phil's favorite cop, not mob films, in terms of accuracy?" Go ahead, Bill. You answer. Cop film. Cop film. Without, without a
0: doubt, the greatest. Cop series ever made is The Wire on HBO from Baltimore. They caught everything right on the head. The language of the streets, the acting was tremendous. The stories, it was just, I, I think there's like five or six years of it. Buy the whole series, buy it, and watch it, and binge it. It is so great. It's, I, I can't say how, I mean, you know, when you're looking for authenticity. In a cop show—it's—it's it's amazing. They even got like the crime scene stuff correct, you know, which I thought was amazing. And I was like, wow, you know, th- there was one scene where a guy gets strangled in a prison, right? And a, g- he, a guy strangles him with his arm. Then he takes a little ligature and he ties it around his neck and puts him ties him to a doorknob and lets his weight go. And people are like you can die that way. So you certainly can die that way. It cuts off your carotid artery, and you're dead. But guess what? When they did the autopsy, they said, wait a minute. This ligature didn't cause his death. And the reason being is dead bodies don't bruise. So if he was killed by that ligature, there should be bruising around the neck. But right. he was already dead. Yeah. So only someone that knew crime scene or science would know that. And they they caught that in the wire, and I was like, that was brilliant. Dead bodies
1: do not bruise, and I was like, that was great. You know, I got to agree with you, Bill. Series wise, the Wire was unbelievable. I uh, I always borrow a, a a term that I picked up in the Wire was when they talk about a good cop, they used to say he's good police, he's good police. That oh, he's that was, no, he's
0: real police. They said he he was once real police. They say that yes,
1: right. But but there was there was a a, a black guy that played a detective in that show, and he would refer to a guy that bunk. You talk about bunk. Bunk. <laughs> that's him. When 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 they wanted to know if they could trust a guy, uh, another cop. Meaning, you know, because you're doing sensitive cases, they would say good police. He's good police. Right. Uh, my brother. My brother Nick just texted me. He said he agrees with you, Bill, one hundred percent. The Wire was the greatest drum ever, better than The Sopranos. That's pretty uh, wow. pretty deep. shoes. You know, I'll with. tell
0: you one thing, too, why The Wire got me. One time they had this scene in a bar and a couple of them were retiring. And it was so authentic. I had tears running down my face during that because it reminded me of like an NYPD retirement party where guys were leaving and everyone was like teary eyed because, oh, you believe these five guys left? You know, because that's what happens. And they had like the bagpipes and I was just like, this is uh, this is too much, you know, but it was so real and it was so amazing that, you know, I was like, this is the best show ever made. Best cop show ever made.
1: Absolutely. So I'm going to agree with you on The Wire, but uh, that's a series my favorite cop movie was the French connection that really gave me the inspiration to be become a cop. That was about a narcotics takedown. Everybody will know the story. If you didn't see that, that's definitely a great one to, to catch. And when it comes to the wire, uh, we actually spoke with, or I spoke with Dominic Lombardozzi, who was uh, in the, in the wire, and we're hoping to get him on the show maybe late this month or early next month. We'll hope, keep our fingers crossed for that. And, um, There was an actor that was in The Wire, Michael K. Williams, who died recently. I got the opportunity to meet him several times in Brooklyn over at Spumoni Gardens. And he was just such a gentleman. What a great guy he was. It was really sad that he died. He was a great actor. And as many people as came up to him and wanted an autograph or wanted to take a picture, he never said no to anybody. He was a really good guy. and. I think he was very authentic and it's unfortunate that he passed away, but yeah, that that, was a that big
0: scar across his face was more than authentic.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He came from, he came from the tough side of town. He grew up in the projects, I believe. And, uh, he obviously, obviously had some scrapes and stuff, but, uh, it was real, real tragic that he died at a young age. No, wow, he that. was,
0: he was a great actor. He was almost like Shakespearean that guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah he was yeah, so yeah. good, you know?
1: Yeah. I think uh, one of his last films he played Robin Hood if I'm not mistaken. And uh so it, he did that and then uh, I think he oh he was in Boardwalk Empire as well. That's right. He was great yeah. in that too. He was great in that. He was just a good he was
0: an actor man. He was just a really damn good actor. You yeah. know just like the guy who plays McNulty on The Wire? Do you know oh. he's do you know he's British? He's got a British accent. Yeah, he's British. Very 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 and, and the other guy, the the um the big black dude, what he's great, Uh, uh Idris Elba his name yeah. is
1: Idris Elba That guy's fantastic. He's yeah. also British, yep, yep, but oh, what what a great actor though. they must have had to work with coaches for a while, voice coaches to get over those accents, but you would never know it. I mean, uh, they they were fantastic in those shows. And you know, you know what what I liked about the wire was, It really, like, uh, NYPD Blue was also a great show, but that was a little bit too serious for me. They came... came, I was you know, I, I did homicide investigation. I was in the NYPD. They were a little too serious, you know, whereas in the wire, they had some fun. They talked about things. They, they were into reality. That's what I'm into. I'm into reality. And they were just a little too serious. I think in NYPD blow, not knocking. It was great show, but uh, I think they, uh, you know, the way they, they came across, they came across a little too serious.
0: Yeah. I think that uh, too many people made too many millions of dollars on that show. And none of them were cops.
1: <laughs> well, no, one was an ex-cop.
0: Yeah. Well, I think Phil, we're uh, I think we're ready. We're at a, an hour and three minutes. Uh, we uh, we spoke a lot. We're almost like we're uh, we're movie critics here tonight. And yeah, uh, we,
1: we turned into movie critics. I that. had
0: fun, man. I had I had fun talking about it. But uh, a-
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: Listen, Listen, if anybody's
1: interested, this Dog Day Afternoon movie is one thing. That gives you the dramatic version of what happened. I would strongly suggest, if anybody's interested in it, to check out some of these documentaries. All you got to do is Google Dog Day Afternoon, and the documentaries will come up. The third one I didn't get to watch yet is called The Dog. That one seems – I saw a trailer for it. That one seems really, really interesting. I just want to check it out because my head is wrapped around this whole thing from doing the little bit of uh, – research on it so i'm going to check that is out is that hopefully. is
0: that character don salami gonna become a uh a series well we'll have to see bro. we'll have to
1: see <laughs> rumor on the street is rumor on the street is is that you want to interview him so i know yeah, got- i, I gotta interview don salami that the lucchese to family face. told me i get to him and they won't
0: get to him you know
1: all right listen maybe he's got some things he wants to share with you i don't know we'll have I to think see. he knows some things he may know some things He's a man about town, Don Salami, you know. just I heard he just likes to play pinochle and sip black coffee or something. I don't know, but uh, we'll see what happens with that. All right, Philly, is that your last words? Final words is, listen, uh, all of the stuff we talked about tonight, uh, it was part of my childhood growing up, so that's why this Dog Day afternoon uh, thing, I was there. I was present. I saw what really took place. It was just unbelievably exciting. Uh, the other movies we talked about are all great. Everybody just uh if you want to be entertained, there's some great movies out there to check out. Uh stay safe out there and God bless everyone.
0: Folks, have a great night. Thank you for listening and we'll uh we'll see you soon. Bye now.